Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting in the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then then the, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the peritorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a sign, uh, they placed this written charge against him, this is the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. 
From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's hear now from Ben. Thank you, Ben. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Good Friday. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Friends, these are the opening words of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And they speak to us about life in a fallen world, don't they? Allow me the liberty to add another one. There's a time to play cricket and a time to tamper with the ball. What an uproar that has resulted from that. Seven or eight days ago, 
when the Australian cricket team displayed their worst. Strong opinions have been expressed and judgments even as to what has happened. Criticisms on all fronts around this world over the tampering of a cricket ball. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? To pour judgment because someone or something has not met your expectations. The guilt and the shame of it all. But are we any different? Are we? I work in the building game and I have many discussions with my colleagues and they have strong opinions. And sometimes I ask them, is stealing wrong? And they say, yes, yeah, stealing's wrong. And if you steal, you should get punished. Yes, you should get punished. And if you know of someone stealing, you should do something about it. They're not quite sure there, but finally they agree. So yes. So stealing's wrong, and anyone who steals should be punished. And if you know of someone stealing, you should do something about it. The next question is, have you ever done a cash job? Have you declared it? No. And then they give me fine descriptions of what the tax office is like. You see, we as people live as if there's a law for everybody else and a separate one for me, thanks very much. We live hypocritical lives, don't we? We live lives that don't always reflect what we present. The shame and the guilt of it all. Not too long ago, our former Deputy Prime Minister found himself in hot water, having an extramarital affair. And again, the criticism, the judgment resulting, he had to leave that office. And like the Australian cricket team, uh, cricket team captain, had no choice. I think Jeremiah was right, you know, when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, you must be wondering what's all this got to do with Good Friday. But have a look at our chapter. Here we have Pilate, the governor of the land of Judea at that time. And he's sitting in the judgment seat over Jesus. And what does he do? He declares him innocent. Even his wife said, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. But what does he do? He capitulates, doesn't he, to the pressure of people and has Jesus flogged 
and crucified. You say one thing and you do another. The best of men are men at best. And that would apply to all of us. The potential in all of us to end up in a place where we don't want to be is real. And perhaps some of us here now are struggling with guilt and shame. It's Good Friday. And so we remember what Jesus has done. And the Gospel of Matthew gives us an inkling, doesn't it? As to how Jesus suffered, how he was abused, how he was flogged, and how he was crucified. I remember the film The Passion of the Christ. The imagery that came from that film describing and revealing to us the barbaric behaviour of what happened at the crucifixion. You can remember that film? Some of us have seen it. It's 2004 when it came out. But it had an impact on many people. To see Jesus humiliated, flogged, forced to carry his cross, capitulating and dying a horrible death on a cross. Some people were moved by that. Emotionally, have even shed tears having seen that picture. But as much as Mel Gibson, the director of that film, tried to show to us what actually happened, we do well more to understand why it happened. Why did that happen? So this morning we'll give attention to what the scripture says of the passion of the Christ and remind us and remind ourselves of his suffering and his death. And when you read the accounts of the Gospels, particularly in Matthew's account, you find that it's full of irony. Matthew tells, for example, of the man who is king being mocked as a king. Of a man who claims to have much power and displayed much power and now being so powerless. Of a man who saved others and often spoke of salvation but was not prepared to save himself. And of a man who trusted God and encouraged all those who listened to his teachings to do that. Trust God. And is forsaken by God. There's much irony here, isn't there? And I think it will help us to appreciate more what happened on that day. First, there's the irony of the man who is king being mocked as king. And Matthew tells us in verse 27 to 30 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Well, at first glance, it seems that Matthew is merely describing crude and barbaric behaviour that happened at the time of a crucifixion. But when you think about it, we realise that Matthew is saying far more than that. For in Matthew's eyes, Jesus is king. Even king of those who mock him as king. Matthew, you may recall, in his gospel, began by tracing Jesus' human genealogy. And he tells us that he was a descendant of King David, that Jesus had royal blood in his veins. And as you read through the gospel, more than 50 times, Jesus speaks about a kingdom that is, a, that is different from this world, the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about Jesus one day being seated on his throne in heavenly glory. You can read that in chapter 25. And then Matthew tells us in in verse 37 about the inscription on the cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. How true. In Matthew's eyes, Jesus is King. Even King of those who mock him. Is that true with you? Is Jesus King in your life? Or is Jesus still a blaspheming swear word to you? The second irony is that the man who claims so much power is now so powerless. On his way to the execution, Jesus didn't even have the strength to carry his cross. They had to get this bloke Simon to come along and carry the cross for him. Jesus, who had displayed much power and authority among them, he turned water into wine, he calmed a storm, he walked on water, he healed the sick, raised the dead. Now seems so incredibly weak, so powerless. Well, Jesus indeed, in his humanity, suffered a great deal. When a man was condemned to die in crucifixion, he was harshly beaten, as Matthew describes, and then forced to carry the cross to the place of his execution. And sometimes the beating was so severe that he was unable to do that, which is what happened to Jesus. And then in verse 35, Matthew says, And they crucified him. That is, they stripped off his clothes, threw him to the ground and nailed his hands and feet to the cross and they lifted him up and left him hanging in excruciating pain until he died. And John records in his gospel that when the soldiers came to break his legs in order to to hasten their death, they didn't bother with Jesus because he had already died. And so they pierced his side, confirming his death. 
the suffering of mental anguish and the, finish, and the physical punishment had taken its toll. Jesus, the most powerful man that ever walked on this planet, seemed now so powerless at his death. But the indignities didn't end there. As he hung on the cross, the men who were put there proceeded to help, him, help themselves to his clothes, as you can read in verse 39. Those who passed by had hurled insults, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Well, this insult comes from a claim that Jesus made to the Jewish people of his day some two and a half years earlier when he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They didn't have a clue what he meant. But at his trial, they remembered it and twisted it into a charge of vandalism of their beloved temple. And now they were throwing it back at him Build the temple in three days. Where's your power now? Spit on you. So what did Jesus mean when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again? Well, Jesus was speaking about his body, wasn't he? About himself. And they did destroy the temple, didn't they? They destroyed Jesus and hung him on a cross. And as we know, in three days, he would build it up again and rise from the dead. But what Jesus is actually claiming is no longer do you have to go to the temple to meet God. that he himself would become the conduit to know God. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that was in the temple that separated the people from the most sacred place was torn in two. The temple and all its sacrifices had become redundant. The Holy of Holies, a museum piece, And the only way to know God is through Jesus. Do you see the irony here? Jesus didn't have enough strength to carry the cross to the place of his execution and couldn't do anything about the soldiers helping themselves to the last of his possessions. And as he hung on the cross, he had to listen to the abuse. Ha! You claim you would destroy the temple, but we destroy you. You claim to be so powerful, but you're nothing. We spit on you. And yet, by his death, by his powerlessness, Jesus accomplishes his mission and becomes the meeting place between God and people. Still today.
I often wonder, you know, when God looks down from heaven and he sees what mankind has done in regards to the building of churches and cathedrals and steeples, what in the world is human beings up to? To think that he would reside in them. Jesus is the only way to know God. The third irony of Good Friday is that the man who saved others chose not to save himself. Matthew writes in verse 41, The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross and will believe in him. Really? It was not that he couldn't save himself. He chose not to. Have you ever wondered if Jesus took up their challenge and came down from the cross. It would have been a marvellous display of God's power, but that's what it would have only been. If Jesus had come down from the cross and saved himself, he would not have been able to save those who would believe in him. He would not have dealt with the problem that stands in the way between us and God. Sin. Our sin, our guilt and our shame. And he would not have delivered us from the punishment that sin deserves. If Jesus had come down from the cross displaying great power, he wouldn't have accomplished his mission. You see, for the man who saved others wouldn't save himself. His love for those who would believe in him is too great. You see, it's because of his great love for people that he chose to die. Never, ever forget that. The fourth irony is that the man who trusted God is forsaken by God. Those who mocked him, and it's such a cruel and cowardly thing to do, mock a dying man. But as they mocked him, they said, he trusts in God, let God now come to the rescue if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And just before he died, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The man who had trusted God emphatically and had spent many time, hours in prayer, trusting God, is forsaken, is abandoned. When Jesus cried out to his father, My God, why have you forsaken me? It was in total despair. What was once a perfect unity, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons in perfect harmony, who enjoyed perfect fellowship, was now in pieces. And it must have been heart-wrenching for the Father to turn his back on his only Son. Destined 
for a God-forsaken place to suffer the anguish of hell. That's what hell is. To be forsaken by God. The Lord Jesus Christ had himself had taken upon himself the full wrath of God. Suffering the anguish of hell. Because that's where sin belongs. And yet it was by his death that Jesus became the sacrifice required for sin. And so becomes the meeting place between God and mankind. On one side there's God in all his glory, his majesty, his purity, his integrity, his justice and his righteousness. And there on the other side are we, human beings, with all our selfish ways, our arrogances, our criticisms, our guilt and our shame. We have shown such contempt for God. And God just can't ignore that and say it doesn't matter. The consistent message of the Bible is that our sin is offensive to God and it comes under his judgment and it needs to be dealt with. And sometimes I hear people say, you know, God hates sin but loves the sinner. But to me that sounds cheap. It's not right. Because God hates sin and judges it, but he doesn't judge it in the abstract. He judges it by passing judgment on those who do it. And yet at the same time he desires that no one should perish and that all should repent. His love is such that he wants to forgive. And that's what he does. He would rather forsake his only son and receive us as his children. You see, God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. He loves us with a passion. And so he sent his son to bridge the gap that existed between himself and us. His friends, there is no higher demonstration of God's love for us when the Lord Jesus Christ cries out in desperation with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is met with silence. So what does it all tell us? What does it mean to you? That the Lord Jesus, who is king, and is mocked as a king, who is powerful, all-powerful, and becomes powerless, who is the only way of salvation, 
and chose not to save himself. Who enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit only to be forsaken by them. What's it mean to us, friends? The Lord Jesus shed his blood. Innocent, royal blood. The question is, have you been washed in it? Have you sought and received forgiveness in him? From your guilt and from your shame. The film The Passion of the Christ, with all its visual effects and its graphic images, which had an impact into the lives of many people and caused many emotional reactions, and as strong as these emotions might be, it is nothing compared to the heart that has been changed by the living God. The film The Passion of the Christ will one day, and if not already, become a distant memory. But the one who has been given and knows the love of Jesus in their lives will experience joy of salvation forever. The Lord Jesus freely gave his life. that we may freely receive. Where are we at in this? Strong and powerful questions. I pray that the captain of the Australian cricket team would know this. To have his guilt and his shame removed like the former Deputy Prime Minister. To know Jesus and to stand right before God because of him. Father, I trust, friends, I trust that you would experience the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you turned your back on your only son and that by doing just that you have paid for all our sin for all our guilt and our shame Father we thank you for what Jesus has accomplished for us Thank you that he fulfilled all that you called him to do. That he was forsaken for us. Father, help us to take that seriously and apply that in our lives. Father, thank you for the message of Good Friday. For Jesus' sake.
and his kingdom. Amen.